This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including Latin 101, Learning a Classic Language. For this limited time 80% offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, a lot of big news around the world, but the big news in D.C., where you spend most of your time terrorizing squishy Republicans, is that Harry Reid has announced his retirement. Uh, he has. Uh, it is big news. I, I do think um, it signifies that there, people like Harry Reid, who are shrewd vote counters and electoral uh, strategists, don't think the Democrats will take back the Senate in 2016. I think if he thought he had a chance to be majority leader again, you know, he might try to to go for another term, even if it would be a tough race in Nevada. But I think this suggests that they're pretty pessimistic about their prospects there, which is which is interesting. Uh, It's interesting having worked in politics and you know that there are people who disagree on issues, but they still get along. Harry Reid seems to be those guys who brings everyone together, Democrats, Republicans, liberal conservatives. Nobody likes him. You don't think it has anything to do with being the kind of guy who releases a self-serving YouTube video to announce your retirement, do you, Bill? He, I don't know. You know, he's a tough guy, and um, I, I don't. You know, he but he is. Uh, yeah, he's done it. I guess he's done what his. Mem- I don't know if he's done what his members wanted or not. Honestly, in the sense of protecting them from tough votes, it worked in two cycles. He protected the majority in 2010, and then again in 2012. Wasn't as hard in 2012 with Obama winning at the top of the ticket. But then, obviously, it fell apart in 2014. I think the race to succeed him will be very interesting. And I haven't had a chance, just back from Israel, I haven't had a chance to talk to people in Washington about this in the last few hours. But my, I, Schumer and Durbin, everyone assumes, Chuck Schumer from New York, Dick right. Durbin from Illinois, will be the main competitors. But you know what? This sounds crazy for those of us who associate Chuck Schumer with a pretty unrelenting uh, liberal assault on every conservative idea and person. But I wonder if Chuck Schumer is now too moderate for the Democratic caucus in the Senate. He's, he's pre, he is pretty pro-Israel. He just signed on to the Menendez-Corker bill that would require a congressional vote um, uh, if there's an Iran deal, something the administration's against. I wonder if Durbin will run against Schumer from the left, and I wonder if a little more of the conference won't be with him. I wonder if one of the things that will hurt Schumer is that he's too pro-Israel. That What an astonishing transformation of the Democratic Party in just 10 years. And just so you know, in the last couple of hours, several groups have already stepped up and asked Elizabeth Warren to get in the race for Senate uh, Democratic leader. And it, you do have to ask yourself, what benefits the party more? Let's say that the re- American tradition continues and the party in power in the White House gets thrown out and a Republican is elected. That would make the Senate Democratic leader the high-profile representative of the entire party. Do you really want angry Chuck Schumer? Do you, do you really want far-left Liz Warren? Do you really want... Dictor, I, I, I don't know what who's the best for the for the Democrats themselves. Probably Elizabeth Warren. I, I mean, think we so. think of her as far left, and she is pretty left wing. But you know, she's a reason. She's a competent spokeswoman, I think, and she would presumably be a fresh. She would be kind of a fresh face or a fresher face. And um, yeah, I wonder if she'll be tempted to do it, assuming she still resists the temptation to run against Hillary Clinton. And on that, I just want to repeat what we said on this uh, podcast. You know, it's ten times, but. <laughs> 
people, they're, they're crazy. I mean, Martin O'Malley is going to be the one guy who has the nerve to run. And I predict right now, if he's the main guy who runs, he'll get at least 35% of the vote in Iowa and New Hampshire. He may get more. And he'll help himself a lot. And if she stumbles, uh, everyone else will regret having uh, not having run. Or they'll get it later. I mean, maybe O'Malley becomes the Eugene McCarthy and then Joe Biden, John Kerry, and all these big shots, Elizabeth Warren, get in uh, if Hillary stumbles. But I think her strength is being so overrated by the establishment uh, Democrats, and, and they're so timid not to want to run against her, I think. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, Chuck Schumer's challenge may be his support for Israel and America's relationship with Israel. You just got back from Israel after a tumultuous, I think it's safe to say, 30 days. Uh, how are things looking? Uh, well, they are very alarmed. I, had, I did meet with the prime minister. I think he wanted a little break from all the pressures of putting together a government. It's kind of a crazy political system over there. The coalitions, they have to, you, know, you win the election and then your work's just begun. But he'll, he'll put together, I think, a reasonably stable and I think a quite strong government, actually. I was just struck, and so I think he was happy to talk to me. I've known him for a while, and we're not close friends, but we're sort of friendly acquaintances, and we were able to chat about things that weren't, you know, front-page things, including family and and stuff. But um, he is totally focused on Iran. I would say he's in private just the way he is in public when he spoke to the U.S. Congress. He thinks that uh, a nuclear Iran is just a total game-changer, a disaster greater than all the other disasters going on in the Middle East. And he's just amazed that the Obama administration is hurtling towards this deal. And as I was over there, they were kind of capitulating on item after item that they've assured everyone they wouldn't capitulate on. Um, so I think he, uh, I'd say the mood over there is okay in the sense that the country is doing decently. They think they can manage. It's chaos on all their borders, but they think they can manage that, basically. The one thing no one, they think they can't manage and they think no one can manage is this Iranian regime with nuclear weapons, and they are just amazed that the Obama administration is willing to legitimize uh, Iran as a nuclear threshold state, strengthen the regime. I mean, that's an important part of it. This regime has been, you know, weak at times. It looked like it might get toppled in 2009. The sanctions, especially the last round in 2012, probably were doing real damage. And now this regime will be able to just boast to its citizenry uh, hey, look what we got, a total legitimization from the rest of the world and a deal that allows us to preserve our nuclear weapons and the sanctions are going off. It's just strengthening a terror-sponsoring regime where there was a chance to weaken it and maybe topple it and sort of putting them in a very, very strong position in the Middle East for the foreseeable future. Uh, but I don't understand why you're so tough on the White House here, Bill. They did manage to remove the part of the Iranian proposal that required Barack Obama to personally go over and spin the centrifuges every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. That's no longer in the deal. So this tough White negotiating. Would do that would probably view that as a victory. You know, that would be <laughs> Nixon to China break. The one thing they certainly want is the the photo of Obama in Tehran. You know, next year right. he'll be in Havana next year. He'll be in Tehran next year. He's, he's going to be in uh, every. Horrible dictatorship that we're now cozying up to. He'll he'll have a nice photo op at, I suppose. Uh, I mean, when a typical person like me who doesn't follow this at the depth that you do, that Lee Smith covers it for the Weekly Standard, etc. When we see things like the agreement allows the Iranians to keep centrifuges operating in underground bunkers array away from the reach of a military action. That doesn't seem like a deal. That seems like just a win. It's it's not you're not negotiating with the it's like uh, here's our negotiation with the hostage taker. You get everything you want and keep the hostage. <laughs> How is that possibly a deal? I mean, you're right. It's a it's a capitulation. I suppose the sophisticated defenders of the capitulation in private would say, "Look, we're not going to bomb them. Israel's not going to bomb them. We probably can't stop them really." 
from getting nuclear weapons. Better to have some ability to sort of have maybe keep an eye on some of what they're doing and some ability to sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, have a relationship with the regime that might moderate their actions. I mean, I think that would be the sophisticated, fatalistic view of it. It would be like the sophisticated, fatalistic view that justified, I'm sorry, that justified appeasement in the past. Uh, the trouble is that sophisticated, fatalistic view usually doesn't work out well. And indeed, and, and this is something that the prime minister stressed as he, as he has publicly, uh, this, this is not just a deal that will be a bad deal and that will strengthen the Iranian regime. It will lead to more war, not less. Because Iran will be emboldened uh, that just what they're doing in Yemen will be re- replicated elsewhere. Um, at some point, they will overreach. Uh, their neighbors will feel they have to go nuclear to resist them. It just makes the whole Middle East so much more dangerous than it already is, and it's already pretty dangerous. You know, in the if, if you sat down to a group of young people, with, with a group of young people, explain the premise of the U.N., and said it exists because there's some corners in the world where the problems are so bad that the world has to act collectively to step in, this would be an example of what it you mean like if the someone in the Middle East tried to get a nuclear weapon in the middle of that chaos and launching all the uh, effects that would follow from that and you say yes that's what the UN is for and yet the world isn't going to act the world is going to let Iran become nuclear and this is a case where I'm not a fan of the UN and I can make a case for cutting back our participation an awful lot but it is a case where the UN Security Council had acted and there were pretty serious sanctions that were being enforced pretty effectively so in a funny way, this is one of a rare, one of the rare cases where you could make a case the UN was, was worth something. And now we're just unilaterally. I mean, others are going along, but we're acting to to, to uh, you know, dissolve these these sanctions. That's another horrible part of the deal. It's now the sanctions start to come off right away. It looks like, which means any leverage we retain over the Iranians goes. You'll never be able to put those back together. It was a tough job uh, to put those together. Within they do have to have some international you know buy-in because you can't unilateral you know, sanctions don't work nearly as well. So this is a case where you, the UN was working in a funny way as it should be, and we're just undercutting it. It's really uh, I mean that's one of the worst things about this. You know Neville Chamberlain in 1938. Uh, you can understand why he didn't want to fight a war uh, over over Czechoslovakia. Germany was awfully strong. It would have been a very a brutal war. It turned out to be a very brutal war. You know, a year and a half later or a year later, and um, you know, with, not to defend that kind of appeasement, but you could say at least, boy, you can see how intimidating it would have been to stand up to Hitler at that point. This is totally unnecessary. We we shouldn't be intimidated by this regime. It's really ridiculous. They were on the ropes because of the tough sanctions. They they're not that strong militarily, and it's unnecessary. It's the, un, the the lack of necessity of this appeasement that makes it so so appalling. And one last thing on Iran: you think about where we were in the early days of the war on terror after 9/11, where Libya was handing over weapons and people were looking for a chance to cooperate. There was there was real talk at the time of the possibility that pro-Western moderates could take power in Iran that the Republican Guard had the force and the might, but they didn't necessarily have the support of the people. And we've gone from the possibility of Iran falling from within to now Iran you know, tumbling these nations around it because there's so little pressure from without. And that, that may be the greatest, most tragic turnaround uh, of the Obama years. Yeah, I think our weakness obviously has emboldened them, and they're the strongest player in the region, which is otherwise consumed with you know civil wars and internal challenges, and so they've been able to take advantage of it. But again, at one point the prime minister stressed, uh, as he has publicly in private, is just how much this will strengthen 
and embolden the Iranian regime. The, the Obama administration's bet is it kind of domesticates them, civilizes them, but there's very little uh, uh, um, precedent for that in these kinds of deals, and it's really the opposite. And uh, they'd just be able to go home and chortle about this and boast about it, as they're doing already, Rouhani and, and Khamenei himself, and it's going to strengthen the regime. It's probably going to strengthen the most militant parts of the regime. They're paying no price. No price for anything they have done in all these other countries. Think about that. We're in this negotiation with the president of Iran. It's going to be signed off on by the supreme leader. And no even gesture, not even a phony pretense, you know, that they're going to pull back somewhere. Usually with the Soviet Union, we cut some bad deals, but there was at least a pretense that they would stop doing something they shouldn't be doing somewhere in the world. We're not even asking that of the Iranians. And that, I think the, the image, you just can't underestimate when you're over in the Middle East, and you talk to Arabs as well as Israelis, the image of how weak we are, the sense of how weak we are, is so pervasive, and that is so dangerous. Yes, it is, and what makes it particularly tragic is we're not weak, we're just unwilling. That's the sad part, is that we, got, yeah. we have all the strength. Hey, I, got, I cannot have our Friday podcast uh, finish up unless we talk about the current state of the 2016 race. Now that we have an official contestant, our first one in, Ted Cruz. Are you going to throw your endorsement behind him right now, Bill, or are you going to wait a few more weeks before you endorse Ted Cruz for president? I'll wait till I get my marching orders privately from you <laughs> off the air. As you know, you you drive all weekly standard coverage of these things. <laughs> you know, all the I saw some piece some online was in Israel left chortling about oh what a weak field. I think it's the opposite. I mean, what everyone thinks of Cruz, and I'm not sure he's the be the best nominee for the party. Pretty impressive launch, pretty impressive announcement. Uh, awfully good speaker, raised some fundamental issues, and despite the left's attempt to mock him, I think he'll be more formidable than people think. And obviously, Walker Rubio, a lot of the others haven't even, uh, you know, formally announced yet. So I continue to think it's a very strong field, and I much prefer to have the Republican hand going into 2016 than the Democrats with their apparent coronation of Hillary Clinton. Uh, one last follow-up on that: Does Ted Cruz make the field stronger or weaker? Because I have no vision in my mind of Ted Cruz being the nominee of the party, but I absolutely can see him making the other candidates stronger by forcing them to confront questions that the grassroots want confronted and coming up with answers that work for both the grassroots and for the voters, you know, the casual voter who's, you know, will be voting in November. I think that's really a good point, Michael. I mean, on something like Obamacare, Cruz is going to make sure that the Republicans have a serious commitment to repealing it and a serious plan to replacing it. That doesn't mean you have to sign off on his shutdown you know, tactics in 2013. And I'd say the same on a lot of other issues. Yes, I very much agree that I, I think Cruz is running is a, is a plus. And, you know, again, the establishment types always get nervous. And sometimes they're right to be nervous. Oh, too many people running. Or he's going to drag people to the right. I don't think he's going to drag people to the right. I think he is going to force people to respond to voters' actual concerns uh, in many different areas. And, you know, in areas, and, and if people want to disagree with them, that's fine, too. Then they should, then they should take them on. But I, uh, I think you see, incidentally, how helpful it is to have Cruz, but also Walker Rubio, the younger generation running. When you see uh, James Baker, uh, at the top of the list of Jeb Bush's foreign policy advisors, I guess out of family loyalty or something, uh, speaking to J Street, to the anti-Israel left-wing group J Street, uh, attacking Netanyahu, and then J uh, Jeb Bush has to put out statements sort of distancing himself from Baker, and it really reminds you there's an advantage to not having a candidate who's got all these barnacles from, from the past uh, hanging on to him. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to see the uh, campaign move forward. I only have one motto, stay out the bushes. Other than that, I'm looking forward. I think it's going to be great to have a wide-open season. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill. We appreciate it. 
Hey, my pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.